Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hey, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're breaking down distribution, particularly for shorts and web series. If you'd like to suggest an upcoming topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, at BreakingOutPod, or via email, BreakingOutOfBreakingInPod at gmail.com. And if you want deeper dives into everything we cover on this podcast, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash BreakingOutPod. Pod. For just $3 a month, you'll get bonus content like templates, curated learnings, and custom infographics. For $5 a month, you'll get a holographic logo sticker. And for $10 a month, you'll get that, the sticker, and a shout out at the end of every episode because you are one of our VIPs. So, Christina, putting our short form content places. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, where should we start? I mean, I just wanted to say at like the very top, like first minute of this podcast that like, I strongly believe that in most cases, short form content is best distributed by just putting it somewhere for free, like YouTube or Vimeo, and putting all of your efforts into the marketing aspect. Um, We'll talk about like, I've I've distributed my content elsewhere. But I short form content, there's an expectation that people have like audiences have specifically that if it's short form, they get it for free. Mm -hmm. So when you go against that, but you're still trying, like you you don't want to make the barrier for entry any higher. Getting people to watch like high quality non-vlog YouTube, like short form content is hard enough, like to Mm -hmm. get people to sit down to watch a 15 minute short film, like seems like something be really easy, but that's not how people generally consume narrative content. So when you're already asking them to do something different than they would normally do you don't want to make it even harder on them to access that thing um and certainly it's pretty hard to get them to pay for it unless you already have an established audience so i just before we even talk about anything (laughs) i just wanted to say my opinion is put it on youtube or vimeo if you have a vimeo account that you want to pay for i don't personally want to pay for vimeo so i don't i do have a vimeo (laughs) account we can kind of talk about the like pros and cons there uh, I personally prefer Vimeo and you prefer YouTube and we can have that <laughs> debate or <laughs> not really a debate. I don't, I don't disagree with your reasons, um, but yeah, free. I, the reason is free. Right, right. <laughs> I will say upfront that, so we're going to do an episode at some point about feature distribution mm-hmm. in some way. But if you think about people's viewing habits when it comes to features, you know, they're probably subscribed to at least five platforms that they're paying for monthly that they they go to to find movies to watch because they generally don't want to go pay for an individual title when they're already paying, you know, $12 a month for hundreds or thousands of titles. So even just on the feature side, it's already a barrier to entry to get people to pay to watch your movie if they're not already paying for the service it's on. And most of those platforms, I'm pretty sure most, if not all, uh, don't, don't (laughs) support shorts. And so like, you're not going to, they're not going to be where people are, are already watching where you could potentially make money. And It's just so hard. It's like as someone who has two features, it's so hard to get the average person to say like, oh, yeah, I'll pay to rent your movie when that's half of what they're paying for the monthly one monthly service where they get hundreds of titles. So anyway, that all of that is to say that if it's that hard for a feature like, you know, a 90 minute film, it's nearly impossible to get anyone to pay for a short. 
So like yeah. any kind of TIVA, like transactional one-time payment for to watch your short type of service is just like out the window. And then if you think about SVOD, all the streaming platforms, it's very unlikely that someone is going to sign up for another streaming platform that doesn't have any content that like has water cooler quality to it where like everyone they know is talking about it. It's very unlikely mm-hmm. that they're going to sign up because they already have, you know, five to 10 subscriptions that they're paying for. So so yeah, it's just like so hard to monetize shorts. And that's why I do 100% agree with you that like exposure and putting in money to marketing is really your your best bet. And, and really shorts to me are a way to build an audience so that you can yeah. get future stuff funded in some way, whether it's through crowdfunding or investors because you prove to them that you have an audience or, you know, partnering with a production company who sees that you come with an audience. Again, it really all comes back to like having an audience to utilize in some way. Yeah, uh, 100%. This is a question that we're going to answer by nature, but I wanted to give a friend of the pod, Shay, a shout out. Shay asks, should you be thinking about distribution for your short film all the way from pre-production? Yes, (laughs) you should be. (laughs) I mean, it's never, so it's never too late to start thinking about distribution, but in an ideal world, you are thinking about it immediately. Like once you decide to make that thing, you should be thinking about what you want to do with it, how you're going to get it seen, because mm-hmm. what's the point of, of making it if, if potentially no one sees it? So you should really be thinking about a strategy, like back to sort of our festivals episode, thinking about goals, thinking about who you want to see it, what kind of impact you want it to have, even if that impact is like just to make people laugh because they need to laugh right now. That's still like a goal, right? And so that would dictate the festivals you submit to and the platforms maybe you put it on or the partners you reach out to to promote it. So yeah, as soon as possible, you want to be thinking about distribution. And also, the earlier that you think about it, the easier it will be to capture stuff that you need at the distribution phase on set. You Mm -hmm. know, if you know that you're going to be putting it on, say, a YouTube channel, you're probably going to want to have other content on that YouTube channel to, you know, pump it up, which means more video content. And the most efficient way to increase the amount of video content you have related to your film that isn't strictly your film is to film while you're on set. So um, versus, you know, if you're going to try to go more of a traditional route or if you're doing Vimeo, where on Vimeo it's probably, I don't, I'm not as familiar with Vimeo, but it doesn't seem like a place where you want to kind of clutter your channel with kind of like featurettes sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. So in that case, you maybe want to just focus on like, capturing interviews or like capturing content that will make for a really good trailer that might not necessarily be in the film, but like, hey, we've got all the actors together. Like, let's get a couple of dramatic close-ups and like some good inserts of the props and things like that. Yeah. And also thinking about, so, you know, if you know what kind of press you want to reach out to, you want to look at, okay, what films or series do they cover? What kind of assets do they ask for from those filmmakers? You want to make sure that you get those things, like Bree said, on set or you know in pre-production whether it's like photos of your cast in like you know group postery type shots or uh sometimes your press kit like they might ask for interviews with cast and crew uh talking about their role and like that could be for festivals it could be for a potential distributor but again like having a target in mind will help you build a strategy and build what you need to put together along the way. Totally. So I think the natural thing that people think when they're listening to your initial advice, Christina, would be, okay, I need to get my content somewhere that people already are, but YouTube and Vimeo seem like too low rent for me. So what about Amazon? 
<laughs> Everyone wants to be on Amazon. Yeah. Like every time I teach a web series class, they're like, so how do I get my thing on Amazon? I've heard you can just do it. <laughs> so we both had work on Amazon. Technically, I still have uh, a short film fully on Amazon and a short film on Amazon question mark, which we'll get to in a second. But worth noting, Christina sent me a video earlier um, that will be included in the bonus content that kind of walks through this. But uh, as of February, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. Amazon has added a notice to all of the like the dashboards for filmmakers who submit work to Amazon who just want to like do it themselves, uh, that they are no longer accepting unsolicited licensing submissions via Prime Video Direct for nonfiction and short form content. So as of February 2021, short form content is pretty much not going to be distributed on Amazon anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. They say that you can submit if you want to, and if they ever open up again, maybe they'll look at it. But it sounds like they're going a more curatorial way. And even even beyond that, even though they're not taking nonfiction and they're not taking short form at all, even within narrative features, they said that they're going to be much more selective because previously Mm -hmm. you could just upload it. And as long as it wasn't, you know, porn, basically, and you met the um, deliverable standards of like your poster and stuff like that, you basically got approved and it was on. And then Mm -hmm. in the last year, they've been really like wiping features off for really obscure reasons and they've been doing it for shorts too but it's been a big thing in the horror film community and they say it's about either engagement or quality they don't say which and a lot of the time it's like the quality is up is on par with most of the stuff on there and engagement like you can't really compare but it's like getting generally watched you know and so it's like what is your standard here that's saying it's not it's not worthy. So they're, they're very vague, but to me it reads as wanting to be like more highbrow and just wanting to be selected and say like we have star power in our content. And the same way that, you know, once upon a time Netflix was acquiring a whole bunch of indie stuff and then they went into originals and they were all about names and surfacing films with names. And even if they do acquire smaller indies, they're not like really showing up in any kind of categories. They're only findable if you search their title. It's the same kind of thing that Hulu also did as well around the same time where they stopped acquiring really indie stuff and moved into originals. And so it's just that same pattern of like boxing out indies and trying to compete, compete with each other uh, with for star power, really. And this also comes on the tail of like three consecutive years of them slashing payments to oh God, yeah. indie creators yeah. like they like I have I have a friend who used to make like half her income from her streams on Amazon and with one change to the way that they calculate like views and mm-hmm. how they reimburse um creators for views it like her income was cut more than in half and she had yeah. to pick up a lot of different work when i first put summit on it was at the original payout which was still shit but like way better than it <laughs> ended up being but it was 15 cents per 60 minutes watched which i mean for a feature like theoretically you could one viewing you know and you get 15 cents with a short you have to maybe get like six viewings or more or slightly less but um it was really shit money however I made about 10 grand from from Amazon alone without any marketing put into it because like horror movies tend to, you know, get a lot of viewers in general, people who will try it because to them it's free. It's in the prime within prime. Um, But it was the only way I was able to get my money back that I put into that film. Like it wouldn't have happened on any other service. 
But then the next year, it was still getting watched about the same, but they dropped it to six cents per 60 Mm -hmm. minutes watched. And then last year, they dropped it to two cents. And and then they did this. So, and both of my features now have been kicked off of Amazon as of, I think, November of 2020. About a Donkey was also kicked off. So, and about, about a Donkey like made literally nothing because at that point it was a two cent payout and it didn't get watched at, at quite the rate that Summit was because people don't try like comedy or dramedy quite as much as they will just try a horror movie. But even so, and there's it was, just so much more content on there now that I exactly, think it's harder for discovery. Right, exactly. And like, even so, though, we were getting like consistently watched. I mean, it was still averaging like 15,000 or 20,000 minutes watched per week. And it was resulting in nothing. Like, there was just no change coming into my pocket. So. So anyway, that's for features, but shorts, you just can't be on Amazon at all now. Yeah. I mean, like one of my shorts is still up for now. And Mm -hmm. every month I get six cents from Amazon. Thanks, guys. Um, But yeah, my, but Ace and Anxious, which had been getting some decent viewership numbers. It was nowhere near your your features because again, shorts, nobody really watches shorts. But Ace and Anxious was getting pretty consistently viewed. But then all of a sudden at random, um, I got an alert that was an availability issue, which is um, customer feedback, including but not limited to a combination of star reviews, customer reviews, and or customer viewing behavior has indicated that this title does not meet our customer content quality expectations. Um, we will not be accepting resubmission of impacted titles. This is an important thing that we'll come back to in a second. Um, bye, basically. Like so, the that's the, the message they send <laughs> to every every single film. Yeah, exactly. There's there's no transparency because there doesn't have to be. It's their platform. You don't own your content, really. They're like we decide, and you have no recourse. There's there's no like you know, hey. I think my film is fine. Like I've gotten only three to five star reviews on it. You know, everyone mm-hmm. seems like what, what's the problem? Um, so like, there's just, there's no oversight, there's no transparency and you have basically no autonomy over your film on the platform. You have no control over when and where it gets shown. You have basically no data, even though they have a dashboard, it's like a functionally meaningless series of statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's, there's really, you have no control and especially now that they're making it very clear how they feel about independent filmmakers and like on their platform in particular, it does, it's not a good ecosystem on a logistical, financial or like artistic level. So it's not worth it. Yeah. And I mean, Amazon was always like, cause with features, it was a lot of strangers watching with shorts. I think it is a lot of you driving your own traffic even so. Um, but it, or it's like other filmmakers or people that are into like art because the average person doesn't watch short film or web series. They don't think of that as like movies and TV, right? So it's uh, it's it's harder to get like wider views, but Summit had like 10 million minutes watched last time I checked, which was like a year before it was taken off. So, you know, it was, it was a lot. And Amazon, like IMDb, is just kind of like a cesspool of, you know, haters and trolls. And so it was a lot of reviews that were like really sexist. But anyway, I would assume that users, if they complain about something, that's like a way to get it kicked off because Amazon doesn't want to do any like digging into that. They don't have time for that. They don't have any need for that. They don't make enough money off of any indie titles to say that like that's why people are subscribing to Prime. So they're just happy to like kick it off. But I think also it's clearly them just like not giving a shit because Summit was up on Amazon for two years of like people, some people said really nice things that we got really great 
reviews from strangers, but it was a lot of like assholes and it was up that whole time. And about a donkey also got kicked off and that we didn't get any like hateful reviews or comments. And so it's hard to really say like what it is that triggers it. But mm-hmm. I do think it's probably someone complaining and then like deciding that, that they're just going to take it off to not deal with it. But all that to say is like, while Amazon is just like a cesspool of haters and assholes, it also was a great place to like be able to tell someone who doesn't follow independent film where they can watch your content in a place where they're already watching stuff. And it's unfortunate to be losing that. Mm -hmm. It's hard because, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to give into the like external validation kind of mindset of like wanting to be able to tell someone that they can watch it on like a buzzy platform Mm-hmm. Because like that can be like damaging to like put all of your validation in something like that, like being chosen by a platform. However, yeah. the reality is like it's so much more convenient and more likely that your film will actually get watched if you're at a party and you can tell someone like, oh, yeah, you can watch it on Amazon. They're like, oh, cool. I'll check that out versus like you can watch it on YouTube. And they're like, well, that doesn't say that it's because to the average person, like Amazon means quality, right? They don't know that like you could upload anything on there at that particular time. Yes, the same as offering somebody special thanks on IMDb because they don't realize that it's so easy to have an IMDb page. Right, exactly, exactly. Also owned by Amazon, by the way. Yeah, right. But anyway, that's like, it's something that we're losing. It's unfortunate. Outside of the money, really, it was about this exposure to like, general audiences not people who are seeking out independent film but like they they can kind of discover it and i don't know if something will come along and replace it but but really for shorts i think it still just comes down to vimeo and youtube yeah but uh to break away from vimeo and youtube a bit david tomei asked on twitter what are some lesser known outlets that you were seeing distributing great work shorts docs features you name it and where would we find more awesome independent work so i'm translating this question to be what are the other distribution options that people might think about um so christina what non-youtube vimeo platforms has your work been distributed on So my web series was on blip.tv in 2013 and it was a great like ad revenue platform where we didn't make our budget back by any means. I mean, it was only a $5,000 budget, but we did make like nearly $1,000 off of ad revenue at the time, which is a lot considering, you know, how little you make off of ads now, especially. But unfortunately in 2014, 14 or 2015, I think YouTube bought them to basically bury them. And so it doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Did they, did people have to make an account to see stuff on Blip TV? No, no, you just had to sit through ads. And it was up to the creator, like YouTube, to decide how many ads and where they come in. And it was slightly curated. So there was like a feel of quality to it. Like you had to have certain quality standards. And being on the homepage was kind of a big deal. Like our ninth episode was a staff pick and got, you know, twice as many views as all the other episodes that weren't staff picks. So, and it was in the early days of web series. So it wasn't an oversaturated space to begin with. Mm -hmm. But that's really the only platform I've personally distributed shorts on because I've had my short through Alter, but they use YouTube. It's a YouTube channel and, and their Facebook as well. Like they just have their channels on existing platforms. And um, we can talk more about them because they do pay and, and, so, and you're not behind a paywall. So that's great, but I won't elaborate on that yet. 
Uh, film Shortage is similarly not a hosting site. They just embed your film onto their page and they share your film on your channels out on their social. So so I've had them uh, share my Vimeo link, but but I haven't actually been on theirs. And then I've done Vimeo On Demand, which is behind a paywall, but only for features. And... I'm trying to think. Oh, for a while there was VHX, but they were bought by Vimeo. So they're not around anymore. I, I think we've worked with roughly the same number. So I've had um, my short film, Ace and Anxious, is it was on Amazon. Uh, it's most popular on YouTube. It's almost got 150,000 views now. But it was also acquired by Reverie TV, which is a queer streaming platform who reached out to me, I think, after a film festival that I was in. Um, they sent me an email that was like, hey, we saw your film at a festival uh, and we realized that we need more asexual content for our ostensibly queer library of independent mm-hmm. content. Um, so uh, they added me. Uh, we'll, we can go into detail on all of these later, but that that was the only one that ever reached out to me personally. Actually, no, that's not true because Sika TV also reached out to me. Sika TV is a um, indie series platform so it's an exclusively web series platform no shorts or like long form and I say they reached out to me like I know the CEO of Sika TV because he's big in the web series world he's also a creator himself so when I was at Starable like I just knew him as a person um and Mm -hmm. so he reached out to me like hey do you want to put your web series on my platform it's a non-exclusive platform so I was like sure we can unpack that as well. But then Brooklyn On Demand is the only other non-YouTube Vimeo platform that I've ever been distributed on. And I just checked their website. They have a Roku app, I believe. Brooklyn On Demand is a streaming platform for Brooklyn-made content, either about mm-hmm. Brooklyn or just based in Brooklyn. So I put brains up there. Um, but the the whatever their player is, is broken. It refuses to connect. <laughs> um, but this was a weird platform because um, even though they accepted web series, they made you make it into one file so I had to spend like two days painstakingly figuring out a way to like put all of my web series into a single file but in a way that like made cohesive sense to like flow through and didn't make somebody watch two minutes of credits every couple of minutes Mm. um so that was kind of a pain in the ass and I don't think anyone's ever watched Brooklyn on demand (laughs) so that one there's not really much to say but all of the platforms that I am on um are non-exclusive and that was important to me because especially since I like didn't know a lot about any of them um I wanted to make sure that like I could still have autonomy over my work which I'm Mm -hmm. glad that I did because I will say, broadly speaking, I've gotten nothing <laughs> from yeah. any of my distributors. They're all very nice. I, you know, I like George Reese, who created Sika TV. Reverie TV seems nice. I don't really have a lot of interactions with them, but they've done nothing for me. <laughs> yeah, I was reached out to by Reverie, but then talking to people, everyone was like, "I haven't seen anything. No money. No like." real exposure Mm -hmm. (laughs) no audience data Yeah, no data like I have no idea how to find out how well my film's doing to this day as far as I understand it I'm still the only primary asexual project on their platform like if you search Mm -hmm. asexual on their platform my film is the only one that comes up so Mm -hmm. it seems like they really are hurting for my content but even so they never promote it Right. The thing is about these platforms is that, like I said earlier, it's so hard to get people to pay for a new platform. And so Mm -hmm. what they're really like doing is using your content to try and prove to people that there's a library that they, you know, that they can't get anywhere else and to get them to subscribe. But I think then they like get more out of it than you do because if no one actually watches your thing, 
then you're not getting any of that pie of the subscriber pool, right? And so I I agree that like as long as it's not exclusive, it's probably worth it. But I also think that I don't know, like I'm just I'm personally very weary of just like letting my film be used by a platform to build an audience when I don't really like fundamentally believe in what the platform is doing or I don't feel like they're doing right by the filmmakers or you know they're just like not even helping to promote so it's like what's the point yeah no I I I agree there are endless streaming platforms there are so many and a lot of like identity-based ones I can't speak to all of them um but there are a lot and it just feels like like how could you possibly get enough subscribers for any anyone to make money and for your business to be sustainable when it's like the big the big ones are competing with each other for subscribers even and they've got like star power in their content and so a lot of this will come back to YouTube and Vimeo really being where what we believe in in terms of getting your film or series watched but I will say that there are a couple of um, like businesses or entities that will take on films for their channel in non-exclusive ways and actually pay some sort of fee and and those are worth exploring so Alter and Dust um, I have a short on Alter the gaze Dust is their sci-fi companion Alter is for horror Justice for Sci-Fi. They're both owned by Gunpowder and Sky, um, and they have they have money behind them because they they put out a new film like a week, basically, if not more often than that. And they also make features and stuff. And uh, they have a flat five hundred dollars that they pay to filmmakers for their film, and it's not exclusive. So you you can put it on your own channels you can put it elsewhere and what's great is that it's not behind a paywall so there's no barrier of entry for people if you just want to tell them to watch it on alter or watch it on dust and uh they their films get a lot of exposure because they've built a really big audience of specifically genre fans and the average film in the first like 24 hours gets at least 30,000 plays. Well, it's because they're treating YouTube like YouTube is meant to be treated. Alter and, and Dust are doing what filmmakers really can't do independently on these platforms, mm-hmm. specifically yeah. YouTube, because YouTube's algorithm celebrates and rewards consistency, which most filmmakers mm-hmm. can't keep up with. You can't make a great short film every week. Um, so what yep. they've done is taken like the problem of short filmmakers who like can't build up momentum with their individual channels and consolidated them. So like people who subscribe aren't necessarily like fans of indie content or fans, of, you know, they're just fans of horror work, high quality curated horror work. And they're fans of YouTube channels where they get to watch fun stuff and so when they subscribe they're subscribing to a youtube channel they're not necessarily subscribing to like i want to see cool new independent content like they don't think about it like that they just think of Mm -hmm. it like this is the horror youtube channel i subscribe to and i think that's really smart yep agreed so i mean it's been working and my film as of now the gaze i i think i don't know if it's hit a hundred thousand it was released in august of 2020 we're recording this in february of 2021 i I know that it hit 75 after the first month. So I assume it's there. Yeah, I just haven't checked because also the comments, I mean, it's been really, like it was really fun in the first 48 hours to read all the comments and like all the supportive stuff and then also people that were being like nitpicky and 
And Trolly, though, I will say they monitor their comments alter. Like, they are really good about that. They take down things that are, like, really offensive or just really horrific. But um, even though, like, constructive criticism, I really enjoyed reading. But I had to just, like, stop. And I was like, I'm not going to – I can't keep looking because it will become obsessive. And I already check enough things obsessively. So <laughs> I don't need to add that to the list. So what is Alter and Dust's business strategy, do you think? Because, like, I can see the benefit on our end as filmmakers. But, like, what are mm-hmm. they getting out of that? Like, are they – low-key sort of tr- like piloting new creators they want to work with for longer form stuff like I are think they intending so. to acquire from what i've heard they are definitely looking to acquire content for series and features and so it is to have just like connections to all of the up and coming genre directors to see the work that's out there to build an audience who will watch their longer form stuff that is that's behind paywalls Um, And they do put ads on their exclusives, I believe. So they do have an exclusive contract, which I believe pays $1,000. And those are a select few. So there's no ads on the non-exclusive films. So they're not even making money off of like a film that gets, you know, 50,000 views, 75,000 views. They're, they're, I think that's another thing why their subscribers like them because they're not sitting through ads constantly. However, every so often there will be an ad or a few ads on one that they have acquired as an exclusive. And so they've put more marketing into that one to boost its views. And so like, because of the momentum of their channel as a whole, they get a nice chunk of change off of that one film that they do every so often. Got it. So that's part of their like on YouTube strategy, but I also know they are looking to get a following for like a bigger brand, a kind of like a Blumhouse sort of a situation, right? Like to have sort of people that know their releases and follow sure. them and pay for them. The head of programming is a woman, which is like really cool for the horror space. It's not common. Sophie is her name. So uh, just to shout that out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, what I was going to ask is since you're on there non-exclusively, are you planning on releasing the gays on your own channels at any point? Yeah, so I did. I put it on my Vimeo just uh, because like I know that we have a decent amount of subscribers or followers on Vimeo who get notified when we upload a new film. So last I checked, which is a few days ago, it had like 180 views, which is not a lot, but like I didn't share it. So like I just put it up and I've mostly been driving people to the YouTube or the Facebook of Alter's channel. So so considering that, like cool, it was like another, you know, nearly 200 views that didn't cost me any time. Um But I didn't put it on YouTube because I felt like I would rather have the alter one on our Congested Cat channel and just have that view count. I could theoretically do other things with if I wanted to. I could submit it to like other streaming platforms and whatever, but I don't think any of it would really be like worthwhile. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. So just to talk about CKTV, because it's the platform that I've worked with the most because both Brains and Sam and Patter Depressed are on Sika. Um, for season two of, C- or no, for season one of Sam and Patter Depressed, we released exclusively on Sika TV just by choice because we were like, we wanted to experiment with um, A, being somewhere that wasn't YouTube, somewhere that like at the time looked better. Sika's had some issues with design recently and I'm not like 
over the moon with how the site work looks but at the time it was like it had its own thing and so we were like let's see if people will think that we're like a big deal because we're on this new platform they've never heard of and so we were gonna do we it's a nine episode web series so we did the first nine episodes um once a week on Sika. at the time it was um run by the Sika tv people now i have control over my own dashboard and then a week after the first season premiered we would just put it all up on youtube um like binge but we were trying to drive people to Sika first mm-hmm. and um, like no one watched it there. A handful <laughs> of people did. And Sika was very nice and they were like very supportive and they were constantly posting about it. To this day, they still occasionally will throw us, you know, a piece of promo for Sam and Pat. Uh, not Brains. <laughs> they Because Brains was already over by the time it went up there, they've never really felt a vested interest in promoting it. It's just like the content is there. Um, mm-hmm. But like we actually had people tell us, oh, I don't understand this platform. You're going to put it on YouTube, right? Okay, I'll just wait for that. (laughs) And so it was like, well, shit. Um, (laughs) And then the first season, you had to have, I think, an account. It was free to view, but you had to have an account to view content. And I think that stopped a lot of people. And so finally, they removed that. And now you don't have to make an account. But when we did season two, we released simultaneously, quote unquote, to Sika and Starable. Starable, I don't consider a distribution platform. And at this point, it doesn't exist in the form that it used to. There's no pages for web series anymore. But at the time, I could upload episode to episode to Starable with an unlisted link. So you couldn't find it on the YouTube channel, but the YouTube video was just through Starable. And so we did that um, every episode released to both of those simultaneously. And that was a little bit more successful, but mm-hmm. still people refused to watch it on Sika because they didn't understand it. And even though they didn't need a new um, like login anymore, they were just like, I don't... I don't know what this is. I just want to watch it somewhere familiar. So what that taught us is that like, even people who were really excited about it, because like that show has a very small, but very excitable audience base. Um, even the people who were like so psyched to see the second season were not willing at all to like even try to see it early <laughs> on yeah. a different platform that was free. <laughs> so um, we, when we released our bonus episode last year, we just went straight to YouTube and didn't bother with anything else. We were like, here it is. It's on YouTube. (laughs) Have at it. And people were very happy. I think that the central problem is that like most small distributors, even the ones that have great content, like I think Sika TV has a lot of great content on it. I think Reverie TV has a lot of great content on it. If they don't already have a pre-existing base, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to get people to join a brand new platform. Because like Christina was saying, people already have at least five platforms that they pay for that's already too many places to check for new content. So why in God's name would anybody subscribe to a web series platform (laughs) to watch new indie web series? Like I have Netflix, (laughs) you know? It's like the people who don't download TikTok, myself included, because if a TikTok's good enough, it will break away from the platform and I'll see it on Twitter. (laughs) Right, right. It's hard to change people's behavior. Behavior mm-hmm. and what their defaults are, like how they watch content where they're comfortable. And usually the only way to do it is like social pressure. If there's like enough people around them that they f- they have, you know, FOMO that they're like, they feel like they're missing out on something. And it's really hard for independent creators to create that feeling unless you have, you know, the money to put into marketing to just like spread the word all over the place. And you have connections to press that'll really like write about you and make you stand out and just like the sea of stuff that's being made. And and that's why, like everything, it always kind of comes back to 
the the creators that have pre-existing access and have you know money are always going to to have a step up and are always going to have it a little bit easier but um but even within that it's so hard because there's just so much content like everyone has an endless list on every platform that they subscribe to right mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you really have to be like giving people something they're really not getting that they really want in order to to really reach them through all the noise and over all the stuff that they've already been waiting to watch. And that is to say that why I think like audience first and really thinking about who your core audience is, is the key to distribution across any kind of type of filmmaking, whether it's short series or features. It is all about knowing who your core audience is, how to reach them, what their behaviors are, which is a lot of stuff we talked about in, we talked about crowdfunding and and we talked about marketing. Yeah, and I think filmmakers aren't wrong that sometimes people turn their nose up at a a film that's on Vimeo or YouTube, Um, but they're also not right that, okay, well, I just need to be somewhere that isn't that because Mm -hmm. if somewhere that isn't that is too unfamiliar and there's not as simple of just like you send them a web page and they can click play immediately, you know, then that, they'll they'll hate that even more like I will take like a turned up nose but ease of entry over (laughs) you know the opposite any day right and you can always have the best of both worlds if you can get yourself some press and it doesn't have to be like big press but it has to just be press that feels curated so like someone with taste that an audience respects doesn't have to be a small audience just that they have an audience and people trust their taste and they feature your film and it could be an embed of your Vimeo or YouTube but it has this like curation to it that Mm. makes it not be so like oh just anything can be on there yeah like when Ace and Anxious quote unquote premiered it was um, at an online festival called uh, St. Louis Online Film Festival something like that Um, couldn't tell you what I got out of the festival but it was an <laughs> online premiere and they just embedded the films that were selected on their web page and so that just sort of became our premiere and after that I just left the film up um, and that did create a little bit of momentum for like audiences who weren't as familiar with me that's when we got our first big bump for Ace and Anxious is we were premiering at a film festival and we were in a film with an asexual lead character which is extremely uncommon and so the, mm-hmm. the kind of one-two punch of like oh finally representation and oh and apparently it's even good because it's going to a film festival like that that worked in our favor even though it was just an embed of our youtube link that's great though i will say you know kind of going back to our festival episode a little bit and all the f- festivals going online during covid the one thing that i feel like was frustrating is that it eats into my release and like the view count mm-hmm. that i have on my films and so when i took the indieworks best of fest online because we we had to do that it was in april we didn't decide to stay online past that cuz i didn't feel like it would accomplish the goals of indieworks but i wanted to finish the season out the one thing i did was ask the filmmakers to give me the film on their vimeos even if it was private for the time being, just make it public in in an embed so that they would get the hits. So like it wouldn't be our hits, but at least it would be like benefiting them in the long run when they do make it public. I appreciate that like for in terms of any kind of online festival, though I know it's hard when it's you're trying to protect protect against like with geoblocking and and against, you know, pirating and whatnot which is less common in shorts exactly yeah yeah. Yeah. so I I think that the big thing that hopefully you've already taken away from this all is that like having a distributor can feel nice but if they can't do something for you that you couldn't do yourself 
And that's aside from like, be somewhere that's not YouTube. Like if they are not providing you with something that you could not do solo, then there's definitely no reason to sign an exclusive contract with them. But even mm-hmm. a non-exclusive one might just be sort of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's it's the same with like, sure, you could apply to this film festival that costs $5 that you'll get a laurel out of. But like, is that getting you anything? <laughs> like, right. Just because you can do it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also say like for festivals, you know, if they have a big following and if you feel confident that they would plug your film once it's available online later on as like an alum, then it might be worth it. But like that's something that, again, you would want to kind of do your research on and make sure it's going to pay off in the long run. Yeah. And we go through like the big like four things you need to think about if you want to sign with a distributor at all um, in our our Lunch and Learn that we mentioned. So definitely go check that out in the Seed and Spark YouTube channel and in the bonus content that we'll be releasing next week. Because yeah, we don't need to go through all that again. We have a very (laughs) concrete section of that workshop that's just, these are things to think about. But like the high level thesis of that whole hour long video was, if you can do it yourself, (laughs) Mm -hmm. don't let somebody else have your content. Basically, yeah. I have uh, one or two other things I wanted to say. One is, speaking of platforms, kind of like Alter and Dust, there is a platform, Amaletto, which only accepts shorts that have won awards at Oscar qualifying festivals. So it's a mm-hmm. small pool, but a lot of Friends films have been on it. And they're not so genre friendly. It's very drama heavy. There are some comedies, but it's it's often drama heavy because dramas tend to win awards most at festivals. Sure. But they don't pay money up front. But the way that I it's been explained to me that it works, you submit your film. If they want it, they put it on their channels and put some marketing behind it. If it gets good engagement, whatever their like standard is for that, I'm not sure. If it gets good engagement, then it stays on the platform and they put more marketing into it with ads, and then they split the ad revenue with you. I don't know what the average filmmaker is making, but I know that the hit count is pretty high for the films. So it feels like it could be worth submitting if you qualify because it's not going to cost you anything. I think it's not exclusive, but I'm not sure. But that's just another one to look into that that is on YouTube, so it's not behind a paywall. And then... The other thing I wanted to suggest is I haven't seen many people do this, but something that I've been thinking about since Amazon made that announcement that they're not allowing shorts on anymore. So really just for a day, I've been thinking about it. But uh, <laughs> but a way to get around that or to be on other VOD platforms that don't accept shorts potentially is to make an anthology of shorts, either shorts of your own or partner with other filmmakers who have similar themes or similar tones. And so then it's like a cross-promotional effort where you're all driving traffic to this one product that you're asking people to watch, and then you split the revenue. So that's maybe something to explore if if you really want to monetize your shorts. And and theoretically, you could have it as like a feature anthology on Amazon, but just a short to watch on Vimeo and YouTube. Yeah, and if you wanted to kind of consolidate it entirely, like making a playlist, um, Mm -hmm. making a collection, something like that, and having like a website that kind of consolidates all of it like watch it as a feature watch it as a web series series of shorts things like that yeah that's smart yeah I've I've I right before COVID happened I was wanting to explore like doing shared screenings like renting out a screening space with a bunch of people and like for anyone who wanted to premiere something like kind of consolidate your your efforts so that everyone got more you know views and audience attendance out of it Mm. but then 
things happened and now I'm moving. <laughs> so let's let's talk YouTube and Vimeo. So the first thing, let's start with YouTube because that's what I know. Um, <laughs> but also we have a question from Kevin Seafried who asks uh, about how he would love to hear some very basic YouTube SEO information and how to create titles that people will click on. And he explains, I know how to videos get a lot of clicks and have seen like heckler destroyed by a comedian lead to a lot of hits for standups, but haven't learned much about how to title can generate clicks when it's for something simple like a web series episode. So my answer to that question is you're asking the wrong question. And it's because in general, unless you have an active YouTube channel, the YouTube algorithm is not going to work in your favor and SEO is not going to matter at all until you've proven to the YouTube algorithm that you're worth sending people's eyeballs to because most Mm -hmm. of YouTube recommendations don't come from like the search bar. Like no one's just searching YouTube, like how to very real. One person has ever become a fan of mine because they searched web series on YouTube and like within the first two pages, an episode of brains had come up and now this person as a fan of braids. Only time that's ever happened, possibly in the universe. But to use Ace and Anxious as an example, Ace and Anxious is my most viewed project. Uh, It's the best success story I have for YouTube particularly. And at this point, it is like very integrated in the YouTube SEO, like uh, about 95% of my views at this rate come from suggested videos uh, and search results. So like from internally, YouTube is suggesting my video to people based on tags and title. But that didn't happen until like a year and a half after it was uploaded because it's uploaded to a channel that doesn't post very often because it's just my production company channel. And like we've already talked about, I don't have the time to make Ace and Anxious quality content every single week. And so what happened was I put it on YouTube. It had an initial like surge of views because of the film festival and because of some initial marketing. And then I spent about a year hardcore marketing that film everywhere I possibly could, figuring out a Tumblr campaign for it, like connecting with asexual uh, people on Twitter and getting them to talk about it, uh, you know, commenting on, you know, open discussion forums, putting it on Reddit. Like I spent a year just exhaustively marketing that film to the point where we got about, I think, I think we were close to like 30,000 views was before it really took off as a result of YouTube SEO. So like the fact that my video was tagged asexual and the, you know, ace and anxious is the title, um, didn't matter at all until I'd proven to YouTube that this was a film worth watching because my channel overall didn't really, you know, indicate to YouTube's algorithm that this was worthy of it because we didn't post enough. And that's what YouTube wants is they want people to stay on the platform. So if your channel doesn't have enough content consistently enough, then that already kind of gets you out of the running until you can show with a single video that you have the staying power that they can trust you to funnel people in and out of it. So point Mm -hmm. being, your title doesn't really matter, especially for narrative content. Mm-hmm. What matters is your ability to market. And once you get like a certain threshold, and of course it's always very opaque in terms of like what the threshold is, but once you get to a certain point of success with a single piece of content, that's when looking at what search terms YouTube is kind of serving your film under will unlock like other options. So like I discovered that when people were searching for Bojack Horseman, people were finding my film because Bojack Horseman is pretty much the only piece of media with an asexual character that's like canonically asexual in like a main character. So I changed a couple of my tags and I got a bump because I had, you know, 
seen that, but I wasn't going to see those, those terms until I had done a fuck ton of off platform marketing to bring people to the on platform film. And then YouTube was like, okay, fine. I'll help you do some organic discovery. Hmm. But it took like a year and a half to get to that point. When we were releasing Kelsey, we were releasing new episodes on blip.tv. And then with a week delayed, we would put them on YouTube and Vimeo because we were releasing every two weeks a new episode. So it was like we would get a new kind of audience on the other platforms a week later. But even those episodes have like two to 10,000 views each. And we got like so much engagement. And that this was again in 2013, 2014. And so much has changed since then with YouTube. And like at a certain point, we were able to monetize, but then that just completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. And I've, I like gave up on trying to maintain that because they just kept changing everything on YouTube and making it impossible. So now I just, I will put my shorts on YouTube, usually like slightly delayed from the Vimeo premiere. But I don't drive traffic to YouTube. It's more just like it's there if any of our subscribers, because we have a thousand subscribers from the Kelsey fans. So it's there for any of them if they want to watch it and like any kind of random discoverability. But for the most part, I ignore like any kind of marketing or building an audience on there. Yeah, but I think point being, and this is sort of indicative of everything. I think most creators assume that if you have distribution, then you have an audience because someone else will do the work. But even in the cases where we're not talking about about YouTube and Vimeo, but especially when we're talking about YouTube and Vimeo, no one's going to do the work for you, but you, Mm -hmm. even things that seem like a viral success, you know, Mm -hmm. had quite a lot of behind the scenes stuff. There's too much content now to just go viral because you happen to have the right combination of words in your title. Like that's not a thing that happens anymore. So it's better to find a platform that feels comfortable to you, that displays your content in the way that you want to display it. That is where you want to spend your time and then focus your efforts on getting people to to that, which is why we're like, don't put it on a platform where people don't understand and you have to like explain to them how to use it. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. Just give them a link, embed it on a website, whatever it is, and like focus on marketing, not on like the platform itself. But with that said, why do you prefer Vimeo, Christina? A few reasons. So part of it is aesthetic. I like the way Vimeo looks, like it feels more polished and professional. And so for people who aren't filmmakers who are general audiences I think it's just like cleaner and nicer and feels fancier (laughs) and it doesn't for people who aren't filmmakers and aren't like people who search YouTube a lot and you know check out they're not like gamers they're interested in higher brow like film I think that there is an assumption that YouTube is for like more amateurish content which is obviously not true but there is that assumption and I think that Vimeo feels more curated I I like that, though I, it's all like, you know, nonsense, of course, but because mm-hmm. you can put anything on Vimeo as well. I like that it's going to be watched in the quality that my film actually is, though. That's a big one for me because YouTube mm. often lowers the quality. So like the visual isn't the, the way I want it to be. Exactly. Things. Yeah. And uh, and that's frustrating. And then I really like the analytics. So you don't get this with the free version. You have to, I don't know if you get this with plus even, someone will have to fact check that, but (laughs) I know at the pro level, which I do have because I have two films on demand and to be on Vimeo on demand, you have to have a pro account, which costs $200 a year. You can dig into the analytics so I can see like where people are watching my film, what, what part of the world are they in? 
who, you know, where do I have an audience most? Because that helps with other decisions like festivals and, and maybe like theatrical type uh, distribution down the line, but also how much of my film they're watching. Do, do I see a common pattern of people stopping at this point? Like they've lost interest. Well, that's like, you know, good learnings, right? So I like that you can really kind of learn from audience engagement. If it is at the plus level, that's great. That's $60 a year, but I'm not positive. I think it is. It might be like more in depth that pro, but I do think you're at least able to look into the region and the amount watched at plus. Mm -hmm. The big difference is how much space you have upload space, which I wouldn't say is worth paying for the pro because it's a terabyte, which, you know, you don't need that generally speaking. And I think plus is just five gigs a week or a month. I'm not sure. But in any case, I don't even use either because I don't release films that often. But mm-hmm. um, it's worth it for the on-demand because occasionally people do rent my movies and that's a nice thing to have. And yeah, so that's the those are the main reasons why I prefer Vimeo. I also like the way that the the back end for someone who has an account is like the way that you can chat with people and DM your film to people, the way that you can kind of endlessly like subcategorize them into playlists and showcases and channels in and of it themselves. You can have like sub channels within your channel. I just like all that customization because I do have a production company where we have like a couple different directors within the production company, even though generally it's mostly my work, there's still some like different variation. Yeah. And so that's, that's really, those are the reasons why I like Vimeo. But at the end of the day, it does cost money to get at least the analytics. And to upload. I can't upload Ace and Anxious anymore because it's I can't upload it for free because it's just too big of a file to what is be the within. cutoff for uh, it's account? it's something it's like it's close because I used to have Ace and Anxious up there for for free but because yeah. one of the things I like about Vimeo is that you can swap out the file without having to yes, change the underlying thing you don't have to re-upload yes. which is huge but at the point at which like they I think they made a change in between when I initially uploaded it which apparently there was like a missing bit of audio that -hmm. I didn't catch at first. And then when I went in to try and fix it, I couldn't anymore because they had changed how much you were able to upload per like week or something. So I just, I think I just deleted it. (laughs) Yes, that's definitely a shitty barrier. They definitely must have lowered the like gig limit. You could pay for one month and upload it and they don't take down your videos. They just won't let you upload anymore. So that's maybe So you can't pay for monthly anymore. You have to pay for yearly. They don't have a monthly really? version. At least the time that I checked, I don't think they had a monthly. I paid for a Plus account for my personal Vimeo like a month ago to upload my my reel. Mm. And then maybe I canceled they've changed it. it. Maybe they've changed it back because I got... I, I when I looked, there was no way for me to to join on a month to month basis because I I was somebody recommended that and I was like oh, okay uh, while we're checking this um yeah oh yeah so build and oh so now there's see that wasn't here before plus wasn't there but even five gigabytes is not that much um I think my film might yeah. be bigger than that because yeah pro is billed annually there's yeah no way that's to do bro- pro. that's billed annually and. Y- it kind of sucks, but again, it's like if you're going to have a title on demand, you're probably going to keep it on for a year. Totally. Uh, but if, if you just want to upload one film or like replace an, a file. Yeah. But plus, if you can, you know, if your short is less than five gigs without, you know, being extremely compressed without losing quality, I think it's worth it to have it on there for the analytics 
And like I said, they won't delete it if you just paid for one month. They just won't let you. That's good to know. Um, what it, what have you found for organic discovery? Because like we just talked about how YouTube doesn't just grant you organic discovery, but there's more in my experience organic discovery on YouTube because there are just more users on YouTube who are kind of browsing and clicking around suggested videos. I don't mm-hmm. feel like that's really a culture on Vimeo. It's mostly other filmmakers. It is. It's mostly other filmmakers, but that's why I that's why I have it on both because like sure. Vimeo, you get more views from other filmmakers and staff picks. I mean, it's like it's such a, you know, who you know thing with Vimeo staff picks. But if you do get that, it's like really cool to hear from your peers, which I don't think you get quite as much on YouTube. Um, I have found that my horror content does have some organic discovery when I can see people search through genre, but Mm. it's not that much of a difference between the other films. So I I can't say it makes that much of a difference, but like I said, it is, you know, it is no matter where you are, it's so much about driving your own, you know, traffic, your own audience anyway. But the point that you said about being able to swap a file, I'm glad you said that because that is one of the main reasons why I love Vimeo both from just like releasing your film perspective, but also for festivals, because I very often (laughs) will submit to make a deadline, something that is like almost done, but not quite. And I usually can like, if it's not going to be more than like a week before I swap it out, it's worth it because I don't think anyone will watch it. And 99.9% of the time, that's true. No one watches it within a week of submission. And you can just swap it without having to tell them or without having to pay the next the next tier up for submission. Or if you notice a mistake, you can fix it. And instead of having to re-upload and be like, hey, can everyone go watch this one? You can just maintain your same stats. Uh, If you want to update a name, if you want to like change the color correction, like if you ever want to improve on it, you don't have to start from scratch, which is very cool. I just don't want to pay. I will also say because I mostly work in web series, I like the YouTube playlist system better than collections on Vimeo. I don't Mm -hmm. find that to be as user-friendly for watching a series of content. Maybe it's changed since the last time I was playing around with it, but like I YouTube or Vimeo collections, I don't feel are as intuitive. And I like that you can embed a YouTube playlist on a website and it will play through the whole video. Just like the display and organization system a little bit better for serialized content specifically. That makes sense. Yeah, they're not, you don't have as much control. It isn't as intuitive of like what to watch next. The Mm -hmm. way that you have it in the sidebar on YouTube. Yeah. But you make more shorts and features, so it makes more sense for you. Right. Exactly. And and so the way that I use both, since I do have them on both, I drive traffic to Vimeo. That's where I tell people to watch it. But it's there on YouTube for the people who prefer that or if there are already subscribers on there or if they happen to cross it or whatever. Like this is a really random story, but there's this YouTube channel that's all about water. Like it's like aquatic something and there's nothing consistent about what they share because it'll be like a random video of someone swimming. It'll be a video that's like a review of a pool. It'll be a video, a film that takes place in water. Like it's so random. But one of the films that I produced by my friend Ryan Kramer called Stillwater that got shared by them and it has like a hundred thousand views just because of this channel (laughs) and and they when I because I thanked them I was like thanks for sharing this like it's super random but thank you and then because I guess I was like really nice to them and appreciative they then shared affliction when we released it which was not nothing to do with water but they were like 
I again thanked them and because they were like, if you're a fan of Stillwater, here's another short by that same company. And I thanked them and then they DM'd me or said like, subcommented or however it works on YouTube and they were like if you make another film about water we'll be happy to promote it more we can't really like plug this one very much but we enjoyed it and that's so, so funny it's really funny but it also like boosted the, the hit count of affliction it's nowhere near the still water count but it definitely got more than our other films do normally on YouTube so that said I it made me start thinking about like finding really random YouTube channels that are about like super strange or obscure things that slightly connect to my films and seeing if they'll promote them because that worked out really well for Stillwater. Yeah, that's that's really funny. Yeah, also the last thing I'll say about Vimeo, and you might have more updated knowledge of this, but I remember a couple of years ago they started to deprioritize the streaming side of Vimeo and started to prioritize mm-hmm. more of their business model on their like paid stock footage library. Yeah. And so that's definitely a pivot that the company as a whole has been making. So that yeah. might affect things moving forward. It might. It they've also been there's a bigger push to get creators hired in general so like recent additions you can say like turn on a button that says you're available for work Mm -hmm. and if people click on that you can tell them what you're available to be hired for and and it is like a good I, I find it because it is a very like cinematographer's type of platform like that's what I feel from it it is kind of like to get crew hired in a way like get a cinematographer hired for the most part it is sort of like a portfolio kind of a site I would say that's the vibe to it yeah that's all worth thinking about I mean that's all I have to say about distribution (laughs) our conversation (laughs) about distribution is like here's some things to think about here's our experiences but also like listen to our marketing episode (laughs) yeah it's listening to our marketing episode 100% and And our fest episode because they're like all the same thing right right they all they all tie together I mean it's kind of like the directing episode it's like a lot of a lot of what we've already talked about was directing you know and so mm-hmm. yeah i think listen to that and also our lunch and learn goes into more detail about specifically working with distributors and like what to look out for but i'm sure we'll come back to this kind of information oh, certainly and if any of if either of us test out new platforms i'm sure we'll have things to say And at some point, we are going to do a feature distribution episode. So let us know if you have questions about that. Yeah, because it definitely distribution, uh, like the platform itself and the methodology matters more in features than it does in shorts and web series. Yep. Cool. Well, (laughs) thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are $10 patrons on Patreon. Shannon Sprangler, Jules Piggott, Rain Bernal, Kelsey Rauber, Jerry Maravia, Norman Steinberg, and Shana Rose Woolley. If you would like a name shout out at the end of every episode, please feel free to subscribe at patreon.com slash breaking out pod. And also make sure to rate us five stars on your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. And don't forget, actually writing a review instead of just clicking the five stars really goes a long way and we appreciate it every time. Next episode, we will be breaking down moving to LA and getting staffed with Kim Garland. So be sure to tune in. (laughs) 